It's become trendy today for some people to have a life coach, which raises a few questions for me. If I was to choose someone to be my life coach, what would I look for? I think probably before I was too interested in what someone would have to say, I would like to first confirm that this person is actually living the life that I long for. If my life coach is dysfunctional and has no real skill in living, to then choose to follow this person, according to Peter, would be sheer madness. That's what we want to talk about today. If you have a Bible, turn with us to 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter's been reminding us of the importance of considering your source of truth. Of course, Peter has advocated that our truth comes from the authoritative, reliable, inspired Word of God. There is this sobering reminder, if that's not our source of truth, then it's pretty much just someone's opinion. He has a concern now with the false teachers and their ability to influence the people in the churches that he's writing to. Two weeks ago, we kind of wrapped it up in chapter 2, verse 10, with the description that they indulge the flesh and they despise authority. I suggested that's a very good description of many in our culture today. We had, I think, a really good example of that over the last week. Most of you know Friday was the funeral service for Billy Graham. Billy Graham was not a perfect man, but really quite a remarkable life. A life lived in obedience to his call to preach the gospel. And I think for the most part, the coverage in the media has been favorable. But as often happens, it also brought out the hate mongers. People who just utterly hated Billy Graham and his message. You say, well, what did they hate about him? Well, it's simple. They indulge the flesh and despise authority. In other words, they are people that want to live as they please. And they are offended. They are angered that someone would have the audacity to suggest it's possible that some behavior is sinful and offensive before a holy God. Those are the false teachers of our culture. Peter goes on to describe them with attitudes and characteristics in chapter 2. It's a bit of a grocery list, which always makes it difficult to preach, but we'll just kind of manage our way through one at a time. They are daring, self-willed, 
Daring means bold, but I think maybe better, defiant. They're just defiant. I'm going to live the way I want to live, and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. The idea of self-willed is that same idea. It's, it's an arrogance. It's a determination to live their life the way they choose to live. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. That's a little bit of a confusing verse. There's some discussion as to the specifics of it, what exactly were the false teachers doing or saying. But the basic idea is it's a reference to demonic spirits. And these false teachers revile them. It could mean anything from laughing at them, mocking them, to dabbling in these spiritual powers. So these false teachers mock, laugh at, dabble in powers they know nothing of. What Peter tells us is even the angels, meaning the good angels, who are far more mighty and powerful than us, would never do something so utterly dangerous and reckless. It's just a reminder. As God is marginalized, the powers of darkness have more freedom. I I would kind of picture it as the demonic powers in the world. They're like a sleeping tiger. Anyone with the slightest degree of common sense would stay away from the sleeping tiger. Just leave him alone. But these false teachers are so clueless. They're so arrogant. They're so reckless that they've taken a stick and they're poking the man-eating tiger. And Peter's warning is this tiger is going to wake up. There is such a thing as evil in the world. Even the good angels who are more powerful and mighty than us would never be so reckless as to do something like that. Over the last couple of weeks, since the tragic shooting in the Florida school, there's been lots of discussion. Lots of discussion about gun control. That's fine. That's a good discussion. Lots of discussion about mental illness. That's fine. That's a needed discussion. But there's been almost no discussion about the real problem. We simply as a culture will not say it. So I'm going to say it. Evil is real and it is powerful. We as a culture are minimalizing, marginalizing God. And as we do that, we are laughing at, we are mocking, we are dabbling in the forces of evil. We are poking a sleeping tiger. And Peter's warning is this tiger is going to wake up. And unless something changes, you have only seen the tip 
of the iceberg of the evil that is possible in our country. I would suggest to you at the end of the day, the answer to this problem is not gun control. It is not mental health. The ultimate solution to this problem is what we need as a nation is revival. And until we come back, until we come back to an understanding of God and who he is, we are going to unleash this tiger and there is going to be evil beyond anything we've seen so far. That's what Peter is warning us about. The false teachers do not understand this. Verse 12, But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. What Peter is saying is these false teachers are acting like animals who operate out of an instinct. Animals do not operate according to a moral code. They don't think and reason. They operate according to instinct. And the world of an animal is kill or be killed. It is the survival of the jungle. We've been enjoying in our house the uh, Planet Earth, a Blue Planet specials on BBC. Absolutely fabulous. Nature is beautiful, it's wondrous, it's mysterious, but it is also excessively violent. One of the things that is abundantly clear every time we watch one of those episodes is you could reduce nature down to kill or be killed. Life for animals is about survival. One more day, kill or be killed. That's the kind of the flow of the instinct of an animal as, as they exist. What Peter is saying is that we as people made in the image of God can do better. We can think. We can reason. We can conform our behavior to an agreed-upon moral code that allows us to experience a level of life together in community that is distinct from the law of the jungle that defines nature. But when the false teachers are operating purely on the base of instinct, it will create a kill-or-be-killed culture. It is the path of destruction. There ultimately are no winners in that system. We live in a culture that I would suggest to you has actually made a virtue of selfishness and self-absorption. Now, it's disguised. It's kind of, of communicated in clever language. 
But at the end of the day, what we as a culture believe most is that you need to be true to yourself. You need to not compromise. You need to be who you authentically are, which are words that in our culture mean if it feels good, do it. If that's who you are, go for it. In the words of Peter, it's indulging the flesh. And to deny the flesh is compromise. If this selfish self-absorption, do as you please, if it feels good, do it, concept is a virtue, then what is the great sin of our day? The great sin of our day is to deny the flesh what it wants. To actually conform your behavior to some sort of external moral standard of behavior is the great compromise, it is the great sin of our day. But stop and think about this. If everyone in the culture is viewing this indulge the flesh, selfish self-absorption, if it feels good, do it, virtue, what kind of a culture does that create? It creates the law of the jungle. Kill or be killed. Everyone's trying to use everyone else for their own personal gain. In such a culture, everyone ultimately loses. That is uh, the teaching of the false teacher is to operate that way. He says, uh, verse 12, suffering wrong as the wages for doing wrong. In other words, the payoff for that belief system is, is suffering the consequences, is devastation. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Basically, they celebrate their sin in the daylight. By and large, sin brings shame, it brings guilt, and because of that, people tend to sneak around and hide it in the darkness, both literally and figuratively. But the false teachers actually revel. It means they celebrate their sin in the daylight. Another way of saying it would be they're shameless. They advertise their destructive, sinful behavior. Indulge the flesh. Be true to yourself. The great sin is to deny your flesh what it wants. So they promote their message in the daylight. They are stains and blemishes. Basically think about you and your integrity as wearing a white outfit. So your white shirt, white pants. But you get too close to these false teachers and pretty soon you're being affected by the spatter of their evil. 
Now you have grease stains and oil stains that are really hard to come out. Imagine this morning we're all white, top to bottom. But over the months, we start to notice some people are coming back with more and more stains, more and more blemishes. What happens, these false teachers, by virtue of their teaching and behavior, begin to spatter you with blemishes and stains that chips away at your integrity a little at a time. They revel in their deceptions as they carouse with you. The deceptions could be translated their hypocrisies. They revel again. They celebrate their ability to be so deceptive in order to lead people astray. The idea of the carousings, most scholars think it's a reference to what were called the love feasts in the church, churches of the first century. A first century love feast was a first century section party. It was basically a potluck. Everybody gathered. It was an opportunity to gather together and to enjoy some time together. So these false teachers are coming to the love feast. And they're pretending to be part of the family, but their intent is to deceive and lead people away. They actually celebrate their own hypocrisy. Now, I'm going to suggest to you today that we as a culture are okay with hypocrisy. I don't know how else to explain it. The level of hypocrisy in our country, in our politicians, in our leaders, in our preachers, in our athletes, in the media is through the roof. And for the most part, there is no uproar. So I can only conclude, apparently, we're fine with it. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you who are Republicans are thinking, I know exactly what you're saying. It's those Democrats. And those of you that are Democrats are thinking, I know exactly what you're saying. It's those Republicans. Well, let me give you a newsflash. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's in the media. It's in churches. It's in our politicians. It's in our leaders. It's in our athletes. It is everywhere. But here's something to think about. If you are deeply offended by the hypocrisy of someone on the other side, but are willing to just kind of turn the other way with the hypocrisy among the people that are pushing an agenda you agree with, that in itself is hypocrisy. We, as the people of God, need to be the people of truth. Either hypocrisy is right or it's wrong, wherever it's found. These false teachers thrive on their ability to deceive, on their hypocrisy. That's part of, of uh, what makes them so dangerous. It says in verse uh, 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. 
Literally, the Greek here is eyes full of adulterous women. It's the idea that if the virtue is to indulge the flesh, then everyone is an object to be used for my own pleasure. Therefore, they're constantly looking at the women as objects to be used for their own personal pleasure. Stop and think about it. What kind of a culture do we create when we've made selfish, self-indulgent behavior a virtue? All of the people on the receiving end of that are going to get wounded, they're going to get used, they're going to get hurt, they're going to destroy it. What kind of a culture is that? Over the last six months, there's been a lot of attention over sexual abuse, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment. It's been a big point of discussion. But one of the things that's very frustrating is now all of a sudden you have people in these industries, in Hollywood, in the media, in the networks, all these industries that are suddenly outraged. But the truth of the matter is this has been going on for decades and they all knew it was going on. And it was okay with them until it suddenly exposed and now they're outraged. Come on, some of us have been outraged for decades and we have said so. But now suddenly that it's exposed, now we're outraged. Which raises a couple of interesting questions to me. First of all, if relativism is true, if there is no absolute moral standard, what is the basis of the outrage? If we're going to live consistent with relativism, we would have to say, if the perp thinks that's okay, then it's okay. And who are we as a culture to say it's not okay? And yet what we're seeing across the land are people that are utterly outraged at this behavior. So what is that? I would suggest to you it's a reflection of what is true. That is people made in the image of God deep in our souls. We do know there is such a thing as right and wrong. And we know that is wrong. And it comes out in moments like that where people say it is wrong. And rightfully so, it is. But here's another uh, thought about this. What is actually happening that's creating this outrage? I would suggest to you that we all have to live in the culture we've created. And now we're living in it and we don't like it. And so suddenly it's like, we don't like this. We don't want this. We want a different world. Whether you're talking about the violence, whether you're talking about the racial tension, whether you're talking about this sexual abuse, we've created a culture, we have to live in it. And now that we're living in it, we're saying, wait a minute, we don't like it. There is a better way. 
But the better way has to be traveling the path of life as defined by God's word, not by the false teachers. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing, unstable souls. That word enticing is a word that was used to describe baiting a hook, like when you're fishing, or baiting a trap. It's basically the idea that they are intentionally deceiving and trapping unstable souls. So who are the unstable souls? The unstable souls are those who thought following the false teachers as a life coach would make them happy, would bring them pleasure and safety and security and peace. But instead, it's deeply unfulfilling. It's heartbreaking. It's devastating. It's hurtful. And what happens is then the search becomes more desperate. This isn't working. What else can I try? And the more we're disappointed, the more it fails, the more it's unraveling, the more desperate we become. And we get to the point where we'll listen to anybody. We'll believe anything. We're willing to try anything. That's the unstable soul. So they're putting the bait on the hook. They're putting the bait on the trap and saying, you know, how about trying this? How about trying that? And people are very easy to deceive when they get desperate and now they cannot find what they're looking for. He says, uh, having a heart trained in greed. That word trained is the Greek word from which we get the English word gymnasium. They go to the greed gym and they work out. They're not just greedy, they're trained in their greed. They've figured out how to perfect their greed. I mentioned two weeks ago, greed in the Bible is not just money. It's money, it's position, it's power, it's control. Greed is the idea that if the virtue is my own self-indulgence, if the virtue is indulging the flesh, then everyone else is an object to be used or abused in order to satisfy my longings. What is the greed? The greed is the desire to use you, to abuse you, to control you, to do whatever is necessary in order to advance my cause, in order to satisfy the longing within me. They have trained in it. They, they've... they've uh, gotten really good and effective at that. So he ends that by saying they are accursed children. We would use the language, they are children of the curse. In other words, they're subject to the judgment of God, which he talked about earlier in the chapter. The last uh, description, verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. If you're not familiar with this story, it's in Numbers 
chapters 22, 23, 24. Give you the short version. So Balaam was a prophet. When he spoke blessing, the people were blessed. When he spoke cursing, the people were cursed. So the king of Moab fears that the Israelites are becoming too big and powerful. So he seeks to hire Balaam to curse Israel. So they negotiate, and Balaam says, you know, if you're willing to pay me enough, I'll do it. So they work out the deal. But God shows up and says to Balaam, no, don't even think about it. So Balaam says to Balak, the king of the Moabites, you know, God showed up and said, no, I can't do it. So the king of the Moabites comes back and says, you know, let's add some gold. Let's add some silver. What else do you need? He ups the ante and Balaam says, all right, I'll do it. So Balaam gets on his donkey. He is headed to the place where he will stand and curse the nation of Israel. But suddenly the donkey stops. And the text tells us that the donkey can see in the trail the angel of the Lord, which most scholars believe that to be the pre-incarnate Christ, meaning Jesus in the Old Testament. So Jesus in the Old Testament is standing there stopping Balaam. The donkey sees him, but Balaam does not. So the donkey stops. This makes Balaam angry, so he's whacking the donkey. The donkey then lays down. He's like, I am not moving. And then God speaks through the donkey. Now, this is kind of the Brian version, but the donkey turns to Balak and says, Are you mad? Can you not see that the trail is blocked by the angel of the Lord? I am not taking one more step in that direction. Peter is referring to that story and saying, you know, even a dumb donkey, you can mutter under your breath your terminology can figure out that this is the wrong path to willfully choose to go against God is sheer madness. Every single one of us have dozens of voices coming at us every single day. Voices through people around us, through the media, through the internet, through movies, through Hollywood, through the media, dozens and dozens of voices every day. And they're all seeking to tell you how to live. They're all wanting to be your life coach. All of us need to think long and hard about who are we going to allow to be our life coaches and to teach us how to live life. What is the source 
of those words? What is the source of that advice? To listen and follow someone such as the people described by Peter would be absolute sheer madness. Why would anyone do that? Why would anyone do that? We, as the people of God, are not left in the darkness. We have been given a roadmap, a light in the darkness, the authoritative, reliable, inspired word of God that is there to direct us down the path of life, that we might experience the life that our souls long for. Our Father, we are just thankful that we've not been left in the darkness. We have been given a road map. We've been given a light to follow. Now, this is a confusing culture. The voices are persistent and they are loud and they are many. God, may we not be confused and distracted by those who will ultimately destroy us. But may we choose the words of life. With this I pray in Jesus' name.